After an interlude in the book of Jonah, we're returning to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 12, we're approaching the end of a section of narrative in Matthew. And we'll see Jesus' reference to the book of Jonah in our text, but maybe just to review our, our setting, uh, the literary setting of our text, which is... Uh, be verses 38 through 45, is uh, linked back to uh, verse 22, if you notice. Uh, you can scan back to verse 22 of chapter 12 in Matthew and notice the reference to the healing of the uh, man who is blind and mute, uh, pressed by a demon. So we'll see that our text today really is, is going to reflect a connection with that. There is a controversy that that ensued after that miracle, and that controversy goes through through our text. And you'll notice in particular a link between the casting out of that demon by Jesus uh, earlier in the chapter and the many parable that Jesus uses uh, at the end of our text. So, uh, so we're seeing a, a definite flow of thought here that you might even want to uh, take notice of. Uh, back uh, later on in your own reading, perhaps read through these two chapters and see how they, they fit together as a whole and are moving toward a climax uh, in our text. We'll, we'll hit the climax, the ending of that uh, narrative section uh, next Lord's Day, uh, Lord willing. Uh, but today we're going to hear uh, verses 38 through 45 as the Lord's word to us to consider this day. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first." so also will it be with this evil generation. What's your generation known for? I have to admit, as a member of the baby boomer generation, so-called, that I have great shame for my generation. My generation is leaving a church much weaker and we found that we're leaving a nation in much more dire condition than we found it. Well, Jesus has a word for his generation. 
And it is indeed a sober word as well, isn't it? Well, let's first notice the scene here. Scribes and Pharisees uh, come here. The scribes, remember, they're the ones who are like the professional copiers of the word of God, the professional writers of that day and that day before uh, printing, before uh, the easy reproduction of written materials. The scribes were very important in their culture, and especially in Israel's culture, uh, since they were responsible for the copying of God's word, and they were meticulous about it, by the way. So one of the one of the ways that God blessed us, actually, is through the meticulous work of the scribes. They were so careful in copying the scriptures. And because they were copying the scriptures, they were thought of as experts in the scriptures. And so, too, the Pharisees. The Pharisees are like the conservatives of their day. Okay, They're the, they're the, the Jews that, that really believe God's word, uh, that, that want to practice it. They want to live by the laws that he gave uh, the nation there at Sinai. And in fact, they go even beyond that because they believe that there is an oral tradition of the law given to Moses, but not written down, passed down by word of mouth. An oral law that, that aided in the keeping of the written law. And so they... They were meticulous about, not only about keeping the written law, but about learning that oral tradition and, and applying that oral tradition, living by it. So, so these, are, these are the biblical conservative Bible believers of their day. But what's happening here? What's happening here? You're asking for a sign. What? Doesn't seem such a bad thing, right? We see God giving signs. They, they could go back to any number of uh, passages in the Old Testament. We won't look at them now, but there are any number of passages in the Old Testament that talk about God giving signs through his prophets, through Moses. John is going to make the theme of signs given by Jesus central to his gospel. So... So why the, the, the negative response by Jesus here? Why does he respond so, so harshly to them? Well, let's, let's remember the context here for a second, okay? They sound very respectful, don't they? Teacher, rabbi, literally they're saying. Teacher. They're... They're probably, in their own minds, condescending to giving him that term because, after all, he, he wasn't educated like they. He's not a scribe. He's not a Pharisee. He, he's, he's a manual laborer. Okay? But, the, but they're, they're condescending to call him teacher as if, as if they're treating him like a teacher, someone they listen to. They don't have the slightest intent of listening to him, do they? We've seen in this narrative section in, in Matthew an increasing hostility among this particular demographic. They have no intention of submitting to him as a teacher. They see themselves as teachers. 
They're not going to submit to him. So, we'd have to say they're being rather hypocritical there. And what's this business about asking for a sign? We just, we just mentioned that Jesus healed a man who was blind and dumb and demon-oppressed. Like they can't have forgotten that. In fact, that, that miracle is what provoked the argument that's going on right now. So what's this business about asking for a sign? They, they had one. In fact, we know from earlier in Matthew, they had sign after sign after sign. They're not asking for a miracle of healing. And truth be told, at times it says they, they couldn't care less about the, Jesus, the people that Jesus cared for and healed. They want, they want a sign of their making. They want some supernatural, heavenly sign. They want him to put on a show. You're the Messiah. Put on a show. Who does that sound like? Remember Jesus' temptation in the wilderness by the devil? Remember how Satan said, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, why don't you do this? And that's the spirit behind this request. In fact, it's, it's this particular group that is continually asking for some kind of supernatural sign. Prove to us, they're saying, prove to us that you have the right to say all this stuff you've been saying. Okay, he, he's been rebuking them very forcefully, hasn't he? He has just in the previous verses, in effect, told them, you're going to stand before judgment, and you better clean up your act. Right now, you're like diseased trees. And that's going to come out in the, in the judgment where they're saying, who gives you the right? Give us a sign. They say the same thing when he cleanses the temple. Remember that? When they're polluting the, the temple courtyard there with their business-making endeavors, Raking in money off the poor pilgrims in particular that come to Jerusalem. Jesus drives all, out all that merchandising. They say the same thing. Well, what sign do you give us that you have authority to do this? Give us some miraculous sign. He, he responds in much the same way as, in, as he does in this text. But let's, let's notice what he says about this generation. An evil an adulterous generation. Okay, behind this hypocritical request for a sign is a disbelieving heart. That's the issue. That's the issue. It's always been the issue for Israel. If we had time, we could go back and look at uh, passages where we see Moses prophesying exactly this kind of indictment for Israel. We could see Jeremiah using very similar terms regarding adultery 
the nation as a whole. You, you, you are like an adulterous wife, the prophets say over and over again, Hosea in particular. Jesus is saying, you are an evil and adulterous generation. That's why you're asking for a sign. Because you disbelieve. They've heard Jesus preaching. They, before him, they heard John's preaching, right? They're refusing to repent. Don't call us sinners. We're not sinners. That's somebody else. They're refusing to repent. And that's why, why Jesus is calling them an evil and adulterous generation. It's their lack of repentance and faith that's the issue. The issue is not that Jesus has not provided them with enough information. It's not that Jesus has not revealed himself fully enough to them. They are refusing to believe. They're willfully blind. This is the state of the human race outside of Christ. They are willfully blind. They're willfully blind to the truth of God. Willfully blind to their own sin. You're an evil and adulterous generation, he says. But ironically, he says, you are going to get a sign. <laughs> You'll get a sign, all right. Notice a couple of things about his language there in verse uh, 39. At the end there, no sign will be given. See the future tense? God reveals himself on his timetable. I'm not going to pull a trick out of the hat for you, Jesus is saying. But you're going to get a sign at the right time. And that, time, that, that sign takes us back to the book of Jonah that we looked at for the few Sundays there. No sign will be given to this generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And just to make sure that we don't miss what that sign is, he goes on to explain, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's making a parallel here between himself and, and the prophet Jonah. Okay. Uh, we, biblical students call this, call this relationship that Jesus is pointing here to at uh, a relationship between antitype and type. Okay, the antitype, that's from a Greek word that was used, for instance, of the die that was used to strike coins. Okay, the antitype was that die that would be struck into the metal to form the coin, and the coin would have then a type, an image of the antitype. So, so the antitype is, in a sense, the real thing. The type is reflecting the real thing. When you look at the coin, it reflects that die that was stamped into it. So Jonah is a type of Christ in that sense. And specifically, Jesus says, it is this about Jonah that's pointing to me. It's that temporary uh, 
that temporary entombment that he experienced in the belly of the sea creature. Temporary. Now, don't be thrown by the reference to three days and three nights. This is a Hebrew idiom. Okay, this is the expression that would be used for any unit of time that included part or all of, of three cycles of days. Okay, they're not so obsessed with the clock and the calendar and minutes and seconds as we are, so they're not, they're not thinking the way we would in these terms. So if, if, you, if you entered a state one day, even if it's late in the day, that would be considered your first day in that state. And if you exited that state, even if it was early in the third day, it would still be considered three days. So don't be thrown by that, that language here. But the point is clear. The point is clear. The sign, the key sign, the ultimate sign the resurrection. That's the sign you look to as a believer. Resurrection is the sign by which God has revealed himself to you in Jesus Christ. That's the sign. If you don't listen to that sign, then you're under the judgment of God. That's what Jesus is saying here, isn't he? In fact, he pictures a scene there in verses 41 and 42. He pictures the judgment scene. And again, he's using figures of speech here to draw a comparison. And you understand it, I'm sure, without my even explaining it in detail. He's saying, you are worse off than those pagan Ninevites. Because they repented. They repented. And, and, and so your judgment will be harsher than it would be for those foreigners. And he uses Queen of the South, known as the Queen of Sheba in the Old Testament writings. She traveled from a long distance just to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And you've got Wisdom greater than Solomon right in front of you, and you're ignoring it. To whom much is given, much is required. That's the principle we see here, isn't it? Those of us who have heard the gospel, those of us who have been blessed to sit under the preaching of the word, to have access to it as much as we do, we will be judged more seriously than those who have not had that blessing. That's what he's saying. Well, he doesn't stop there. He adds this mini parable beginning in verse 43 that we need to consider quickly. And again, you understand the storyline here. And it is a very fitting kind of illustration for him to use, right? Especially after he's just freed a man from demon oppression. After who knows how many people he's freed from demon oppression. So this 
His illustration is entirely appropriate. And, and you get the image here that, that this person has been freed of the unclean spirit, that their life's been cleaned up, but that's it. That's it. You've benefited from my ministry, Jesus might have said, but you've not used that opportunity to repent, to turn to me. And so this generation is like that person who was cleansed of the demon. And seven other demons come along with that demon back, and he's left worse off than in the beginning. Being a Christian isn't about getting your life cleaned up. Being a Christian is not about turning over a new leaf. Being a Christian, being a follower of Christ, is about not only being emptied, but being filled. And you can see where I'm going with this, can't you? This is the language of, of the Holy Spirit. We thought about this uh, as we were singing our first hymn, didn't we? We were praying that the Holy Spirit would come to dwell within us. That's what makes the difference. When the apostles preached to this same generation, when they exhort them as Peter does in Acts chapter 2, save yourself from this crooked generation. And Paul in Philippians chapter 2, living in a crooked and twisted generation, see the language that reflects Jesus there, that the call is, is to receive the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so Peter says on that, in that first sermon on Pentecost, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Listen to Paul's language in Philippians chapter 2. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And if he'd stop there, we would think it was all up to us, but he doesn't. He continues the sentence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. You got that? It is God who is working in you through his Holy Spirit. He goes on to say, God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He is the source both of the turning of your will to seek after him and the power to do that which pleases him. So yes, there is a sense in which you are working, okay? You're working out your own salvation with fear and trembling, but always remember that it is the spirit within you who is making that possible, who is doing that work. 
Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, addressing those early Christians. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Don't think like the world. That's what he's saying. And not according to Christ, for in him that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul can be so bold as to say in Romans chapter 15, addressing the church there in Rome, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. How can he say that? It's not because they're so smart. It's not because they're so much better than anybody else. It's because they're filled with the Spirit. And so he says in Philippians chapter 1, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. He's praying for these believers. And I'm sure of this, he goes on to say, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's the day of judgment. That the God who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. You ever feel like it's sort of one step forward and two back for, your, for you in your spiritual life? You ever feel like you're not making any progress? I want you to remember this promise. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will not lose one of his people. And so what's our prayer for one another? We'll listen to Paul's prayer for these people. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You want to know what to pray for one another? Pray this above all things. Now, it is right for us. It is good for us to pray for physical needs, material needs. Surely we have the ministry of Jesus Christ himself to show us that God cares about people's physical, material well-being. Jesus was always healing the sick, feeding the hungry. Those are good things to pray for. But, but make this first in your prayers for one another, will you? that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ? Are you praying for your Christian brothers and sisters that they would persevere, that they, that they would hang in there? Are you praying for yourself in this way? God is delighted to answer those kind of prayers. Let me, let me give you some more promises from from his word in this regard. In Colossians chapter 1, 
Paul says, this is what I've been praying for you. In fact, I don't stop praying this for you, he says. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Pray that for one another. Or this from Ephesians chapter 3. Paul again praying, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Holy Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Pray that for one another. Are you going through a period of time where you feel like you're, you don't have much spiritual strength? You at times feel powerless. To overcome those temptations, those shortcomings. Hear this, that, that there is one who is praying for you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. That one is Jesus himself interceding for you, the throne of glory. And so Paul can be confident in this prayer. He can say now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. He can give you victories beyond what you would even imagine as you depend upon his strength. He is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. It's his power, remember. Lean into his power. Don't listen to the world that's telling you to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's the philosophy of the world that says it all depends on you and you just have to work harder and you just have to do more and you just have to accomplish more. The message of the gospel is that God in his grace empowers you through his spirit. And so Paul says to the congregation as a whole, be filled with the spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. Do you know you're doing that when you worship? You're addressing one another. 
in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. You are ministering to your fellow believers in worship together as you sing, as you worship. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What's Jesus saying here in this last mini parable? If it's not, if it's not, look to me for that filling of the Spirit that will enable you to live a victorious life. It's the Spirit's fruit that you want. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. If you're filled with this, Paul's saying, you'll be winner. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. There is an emptying, yes, in becoming a Christian, but there is a filling as well. Sad thing about this generation that Jesus is is mentioning is that that they're understanding the emptying part, but they're not getting the filling part. Now, by His grace, many will, because Jesus is saying a word of condemnation for this generation as a whole. But we know on the day of Pentecost, three thousand of them are going to be saved. So this is a message for every generation, I think. Look to the Lord. Depend upon his strength. Put your faith in the triune God, the Father who has set his affection on you, the Son who has died to give you life, and the Holy Spirit who has filled you. And your purpose is to work all things in your life for his glory and for your good. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how grateful we are for the good news of the gospel. Thank you that is, is good news for bad people. It is a message of salvation for sinners. It's a message of redemption for the rebellious. Lord, Lord, give us those repentant, humble hearts that receive you as Lord, that submit to your leadership, that depend upon your strength through your indwelling spirit, and we will, we will be glad for you to receive all the praise and glory for what you do in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.